In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 14. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. I have some thrilling and exciting news to announce, that being that we're thrilled and excited to announce the existence of our literary imprint, Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing. For ten years now, we've been an audio drama publisher, and this will always remain our core focus. But over the last couple of years, it's been clear to us that we work with so many fantastic authors whose prose and poetry has a place within the Sleepless family, whether in audio format or in print. And so, to cover the in-print part, we have an imprint, a literary imprint. Starting in 2022, Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing will begin expanding into a publisher, with options opening up for writers to become a part of this wonderful new extension of our family. But to begin with, over the next eight months and beyond, we're going to be presenting you with a series of terrifying, thrilling books by some of our most popular and beloved authors. And who better to kick off this new, exciting chapter in our history than the one and the only S.H. Cooper? Over five years, over 50 stories, and now we're deeply proud to share the release of S.H. Cooper's new novella, Inheriting Her Ghosts. A sudden inheritance, a dark legacy, a haunted past. This fantastic gothic horror filled with creeping dread is available from online bookstores now, in ebook and paperback forms. Links to buy are in the show notes, so be sure to check it out and keep an eye on upcoming new releases from Sleepless Sanctuary Publishing. Okay, everything's cleared with the owner of Whispering Pages Bookstore. She's decided to sell up anyway. So, last week, I entered the shop. The young woman greeted me as just another customer, but she seemed to sense that there was something about me. I browsed for a moment, gathering the courage to say something, but she broke the silence. Hey, you're him, aren't you? She asked. I frowned. Was I? David Cummings, from the No Sleep Podcast. I hoped she was going to say she was a listener. Being recognized happens from time to time, but somehow I knew that wasn't all it was. You a fan of the show? I asked anyway, feigning ignorance. She was, as it turned out, but that wasn't what she meant. The woman, who told me her name was Joanna Sutherland, explained that she'd purchased Whispering Pages around 12 months ago, at a severely cheap price, with almost all the stock intact. The only caveat was that on certain given dates, I had to mail letters and packages to you, she said. 
and I was told that you might one day come looking for answers. Now, I was filled with questions. Who instructed her? Did she have the answers I was meant to be seeking? I hit her with a barrage of questions, and she just laughed. The previous owner was one Boston Coleridge, she said. And I'm sorry, all he would tell me is that you might come looking for answers, no matter how much I asked. I asked her, can I contact Boston myself? She explained that, no, I couldn't. He had vanished shortly after selling the store to her. And then, just six months ago, a body had been found, burned beyond recognition, which was eventually identified as his. Another frustrating dead end. I asked her if she had any more correspondence she was instructed to send. No. I asked her about the mail I received in episode 11, from someone claiming to be Alexander Hay. She said that wasn't her, and seemed unsettled by its existence. And then she claimed she needed to close up. She suddenly wasn't feeling herself, and with that, I realized that neither was I. The following is an encrypted recording Joanna gave me on a USB stick. It, apparently encrypted in a way that had proven impossible to break, almost as if the encryption used a key that hadn't yet been invented. But a friend of the show, Christina Orley, was able to unencrypt it enough to run it through our voice-cleaning software. Graham Rowett, Nicole Doolin, and Atticus Jackson have kindly provided their voice imprint data for this reconstruction. When we listen back, what we found was the personal log of Major Leon James. June 5th, 2052. I, Arthur Deacon, Lieutenant Colonel for the United National Space, do enter this digital log belonging to Major Leon James into UNS evidence. It is my hope that it will shed some light on the events that took place on the UNS Echo during the period of March 22nd, 2052 to May 29th, 2052. Unfortunately, due to an as-yet-unexplained anomaly, some of the entries have been corrupted. I would also like to add that it was under my direct recommendation that Major Leon James be allowed to return to duty after the incident that took place in April of 2051. I shoulder the blame for possibly overlooking signs that Major James was unfit for space duty and would have possibly kept the events that happened on the Echo from happening. Please, review the following log. Take what information you made from it. And if any disciplinary action needs to be taken against myself, you will see me in your office immediately upon your request. Sincerely, Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Deacon. March 22nd, 2052. Log entry 46. Well, it's been 43 days since I set foot in the UNS Echo, and 42 days since I last saw Earth. Technically, I was on the Oread for 30 days as we traveled to the outskirts of Europa where the Echo was to be stationed. My post duties are to keep the Echo fully operational for personnel traveling to and from Europa. Sort of a systems check decontamination station. Flight crew will dock before engaging the moon outpost, and then they would dock for a check-in before the quick jaunt back to the Oread, 
and from there, Earth. That is, if they have any research ready for Council presentation. This was my first space assignment since the incident. I can't bring myself to talk about it. Even here, where only my ears will hear the recording. It feels like an eternity, but it's only been a year. A year? God, has it really only been a year? I swear, sometimes I can still hear their... Never mind. I swore I wasn't going to discuss it. This log is from my time on the UNS Echo and nothing more. Thankfully, I've made this an encrypted digital log. Don't want anyone to get the wrong idea. April 4th, 2052. Log entry 47. The Echo feels like home. She's not a huge station, but she's plenty big to keep me busy. The galley's connected to a common room, so the research teams tend to hang out there when they aren't sleeping. The sleep bay has five beds for the crew members, and across the way from that is the medical bay. For space and water flow, the showers are in there. I have my own quarters. I appreciate that. While I enjoy the company of the researchers, I don't want to sleep with them. They might be alarmed by my nightmares. And I don't want another psyche bell. Ah, skipping over that. There's a second private quarters. They created this station to be a two-man crew, and my partner hasn't arrived yet. Something about a delay in paperwork. While it's designed to be operated by two, it can run quite efficiently with one. There is an external dock, room for two ships. Across from the dock is mechanical. That's my domain, being the electrical engineer and all. Then the station ends, or does it begin, with the flight deck. That'll be my partner's area. It's currently anchored, so I don't have to worry about flight, just manually engaging the hard anchor when a ship arrives to dock. I spent lots of time training on this on the Oread, but I haven't had actual application on the Echo yet. There's a crew coming from Europa in two days, so I have time to get acquainted with the flight deck. It'll be a piece of cake. April 15th, 2052. Log entry 48. So, Command has informed me that there will be longer times between the Europa trips. The shuttle that left for Europa yesterday will be the last one for three months. The crew needs more time each visit to collect and monitor the data. This also means that supplies will be bigger, so they'll last longer to preserve fuel. Remember stop-and-go gas mileage? My dock schedule shows a supply drop for the Echo tomorrow, and that's to last for three months. Shouldn't be a problem. I don't eat that much, and my partner won't be here until the next shuttle. They took a while to get his paperwork sorted. April 16th, 2052. Log entry 49. The Echo is now fully stocked with food, medical supplies, toiletries and a small drop pod that I can fill with supplies should the outpost need anything. They were kind enough to include a few movies, some music, and a deck of cards to help keep me busy. Solitaire has always been a favorite of mine. It's going to be a long three months. I can already feel the silence. April 19th, 2052. Log entry 50. While putting the supplies away in Medical Bay, I found a small pod... It was in a crate next to the supply cabinet. Not sure where it's from or what the hell it is. I don't remember seeing it when I did my initial inspection of the Echo, so it must have been left behind from the last research crew. They brought a few samples in to examine while they rested before going back to the Orient. This had to be something they forgot to pack up. It's a rather odd-looking thing. 
It's egg-shaped, but the size of my foot. It's a metallic teal green with a center onyx black button that has silver lines radiating out from it. I should set it aside for safekeeping. The second private quarter should do nicely. April 25th, 2052. Log entry 51. With the lack of shuttles, my log entries will be few and far between. I'll only log important events, since I decided that this log would not be for therapy. So, unless the station becomes unanchored, or I win an amazing game of solitaire, this log will be quiet for a while. April 25th, 2052. Log entry 51B. Just when I say that this log will be boring, that weird pod started making a strange noise. I was in the common room playing my 100th game of solitaire when I heard... humming. At least it sounded like humming, like an electrical device. I tracked the sound of the empty private quarters room when I realized that it was coming from the pod. Strange. April 30th, 2052. Log entry 52. I had a peculiar dream tonight, different from my normal nightmares. I was sleeping when I was startled awake by a deafening humming coming from outside of my room. When I opened the door, I saw a pale light coming from underneath the door across the hall, and the hum was growing louder. I quickly opened the door to the other room and that pod was floating above the table, and it was glowing a radiant green. It sang out to me with the most alluring, melodious reverberation that I've ever encountered. I couldn't help myself. I stretched out my arms and welcomed it. It slowly floated into my hands. The glow intensified, warming my face. The lines were pulsing, and the center button was flashing. I knew I shouldn't touch it but I couldn't help myself. I pressed the button. The pod split open, and a blinding bright white light rushed out from it. The light concentrated on my face and began to pulsate. The hum got even louder. I could feel my ears start to bleed. When I woke, I was drenched in sweat, and my head ached. Corrupted file. Corrupted file. May 1st, 2052. Log entry 1. Well, that's just fucking great. Corrupted file? What the hell? All my log entries are gone. Gone! I know this was just for my eyes only, but I enjoyed looking back and hearing how boring I am. Damn, I'll have to submit an error report with the tech guys. Shit, if my little log's been corrupted, what else is missing? May 2nd, 2052. Log entry 2. I had a peculiar dream last night. I was all alone in the station. Command had decided that there needed to be longer times between the Europa trips, so the research crew could collect and study more samples. A shuttle had just left, and it'll be the last one for three months. I was fully stocked with supplies, but I was going to be playing solitaire for a while. I kept hearing a strange hum. It was echoing throughout the station. I kept running around trying to find it, but it kept moving. I got so fucking pissed and disoriented that I slammed into a whole wall and caused a breach. I remembered gasping as all the air escaped my lungs, 
and I plunged into the dark of Jupiter's orbit. I woke up as I rolled out of my bed and landed hard on the floor. I opened the room door and walked across the hall. I could hear Samaj snoring. Good. I didn't want to wake him. He's cranky when he wakes up. It's almost time for me to get up anyways. So I dressed and went to the galley to make coffee. Morning rounds awaited. May 6th, 2052. Log entry 3. The shifts are split. I have morning duties and Samaj has night. We've taken to playing a few rounds of poker to keep ourselves entertained. There are always a few hours of free time where we each do our own thing. But poker has become our staple. We even started betting. Now we don't have any currency here. There's no need, but we do have IOUs. Each of us have jobs on our charts that we hate. This is going to be interesting. May 12th. 2052. Log entry 4. Well, it happened. Samaj lost his shit last night. We were in the common room playing our 100th game of five-card draw, and the pot was getting steep. I'm clearly the better bluffer, and I won the hand and the pot of IOUs. Fair and square, mind you. That's when Samaj accused me of cheating. He tossed his cards, pushed the chips off the table, knocked his chair over, and stormed off. Since he has night duties, I left his mess and went to sleep. May 12th, 2052. Log entry 4B. I slept for shit thanks to Samaj. He really is a sore loser, and he tormented me all night long with loud-ass noises. Banging, clanging, and humming. All night long. When I finally awoke from my rounds, I found the common room in the same state I left it in. A fucking mess. The tantrum of a five-year-old. I cleaned it all up and began my rounds. Corrupted file. Corrupted file. May 17th, 2052. Log entry one. Sure, I guess. Just fucking great. Corrupted file? Piece of shit technology. I'll have to submit an error report with the tech guys. Bastards! Well, it's been five days since Samaj blew up at me and has yet to talk to me, avoiding me like a child. I've been keeping up with my schedule, doing my rounds, completing my daily station checklist, and now instead of playing a few hands of poker at the end of my shift, I'm playing solitaire. I fucking hate solitaire. May 19th, 2052. Log entry two. Fucking Samaj. He's not talking to me, and now he's no longer doing his night rounds. I have no idea what he's doing. This is a two-person station. I can't fucking do it all. I tried talking to him through his door, but he doesn't answer. I watch the cameras, trying to catch him so I can talk to him. But each time I see him on the screen and run off to the area, he's no longer there. If he doesn't shape up soon, I'm going to file a complaint with command. May 22nd, 2052. Log entry three. That's it. We had a mechanical room alert go off in the middle of the night. Thankfully, it was just a piston lubricant alert and I was able to fix it, but damn it, Samaj didn't even come out of his room. I pounded on his door for 10 minutes. He didn't respond or come out, but I could hear humming coming from inside. I should have gotten the master key and gone in there and beat the shit out of him, but that would have been caught on camera, and I don't need any more demerits. I've had enough. I'm filing a complaint in the morning. 
May 23rd, 2052. Log entry 4. I just filed my complaint about Samaj. For my records, I'm copying the complaint sent from the central terminal here. Command. I'm filing a formal complaint on Major Samaj Noel. He's become negligent in his duties and possibly a danger to the station. As you know, we have two maintenance shifts here on the UNS Echo. I have the morning duties, and Major Noel is to maintain the night duties. After a disagreement on May 12, 2052, Major Noel ended communication with me. He continued with his duties until May 19, 2052, when he stopped. Due to his failure to maintain the night rounds on the station, we had an alert go off in the mechanical room on May 22, 2052. I'm sure that this sent a notification to Tech, but I was able to correct the mishap and now the station is fully operational. I respectfully request that Major Noel be reprimanded and possibly removed from his post. I'm aware that the next supply ship is scheduled for June 16, 2052, but without a second crew member to assist with the station, I may not make it that long. I would like to request that a replacement crew member be sent immediately, and Major Noel be removed from the Echo. Respectfully, Major Leon James. Now I just wait for them to respond. Corrupted file. Corrupted file. May 24th, 2052. Log entry one. Just fucking great. Another corrupted file. Those guys in tech need to get their shit together. No response from command yet. I don't understand why they haven't answered my message. I understand that complaints must follow the chain of command, but this is an emergency. I've set up for any messages from command to forward to this log since the central terminals are not secure and Samaj can access them. At least my private log is still secure. May 24th. 2052. Log entry 1B. Still no answer from command. Samaj is still not doing his duties. I can tell that he's alive. I've seen him on the cameras. But he won't even look up at them. Corrupted file. Corrupted file. May 27th, 2052. Log entry... Who the fuck knows? Still no answer from command. I sent a follow-up this afternoon. It's like they don't understand. I will make them fucking understand. Samaj still won't look at the camera. He won't look at the camera. And now he's humming, 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 humming. All the time. It's driving me insane. May 28th, 2052. Log entry? I can't take it, this damn... The damn humming! It's in my ears, it's in my head. Oh God, it's in my head! Corrupted file. Corrupted file. May 28th, 2052. Log entry! May 29th, 2052. Incoming forwarded message. Leon. Hey, man, are, are you serious? I really got a laugh out of your first message. Major Samaj Noel, that's a good one. 
I figured that you were just getting bored and wanted to get a laugh. But your second message has me worried. You seem out of sorts, and this official complaint is sending up red flags. Your crazed demand to have an officer removed from the station is disturbing. It would be one thing if the officer existed, but this has our doctors concerned. We have reviewed the video logs from Echo due to your complaint, and Leon, this doesn't look good. You told me that you're ready to return to space duties, and I'm afraid that I might have pushed you too soon. We've been monitoring your life signs, and they are extremely erratic. We will be sending an emergency shuttle to assist you immediately. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Deacon. Memories. Misty, watercolor memories. <laughs> you know the rest. Well, maybe. And memories are all well and good, but they can be misty. Which is why photographs of beloved past events can hold so much meaning. But in this tale, shared with us by author René Rain, we're reminded that the camera never lies apart from when it does. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula. Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, and Mike Delgadio. So flip back through those albums. Fondly remember the times they show. There's no way your memory and a photograph could be lying, right? Unless I looked through some old family pictures. Something doesn't add up. The wound caused by my parents' death never really healed. I often had days when the pain was too much, and the longing to see them again was too strong. I recently suffered through one of those days. It had been more than two years since my parents had died, but the pain felt fresh and burned hot in my chest. I went back to one of our old family photo albums, it always helped to have a look through them and reminisce about times long gone. Here I was, as an infant in my mother's arms. There was my first day of school, and what followed were the pictures of various family trips. I went from page to page until I reached one of our many trips to small towns. My parents never took me to different countries. They were boring like that. Instead, we mostly went sightseeing in Germany. In the picture, my parents and I were hugging each other in front of a small restaurant. I felt tears coming to my eyes once more when I saw us like that. It had been such a nice trip. A few minutes later, I decided it would be a great idea to revisit the place. The picture was from a trip to a small town about an hour away from here. When I checked out the town online, though, the pictures of our trip didn't seem to fit the scenery at all. 
The small restaurant had been in front of a backdrop of distant factories and industrial areas. There were none in the town I was looking at. I was a bit baffled, but maybe the pictures were from a different trip. Mom must have put them in the wrong place or confused the names. God knows she was always a bit scatterbrained. I scanned the picture for anything tangible and finally read the name of the restaurant. When I googled it, I got more than a dozen hits. It was a common name after all. I looked at each of the results, but they were entirely different places. Great, I thought. The picture was from 15 years ago. The place has probably closed down by now. Still, even if the restaurant itself didn't exist anymore, it would be nice to visit the town itself. I continued my search, but in the end I had to give up. I couldn't remember the name of the town at all. There was no use in trying further. Instead, I posted the picture on a German subreddit to see if anyone would recognize the place. I didn't have much hope, considering it was just a random small town. But who knows, maybe I'd get lucky. When I rechecked the thread later, I'd gotten a few replies. Some were wild guesses, others were dumb jokes. Well, it's not like I expected anything different. I left the post open for the time being and decided to prepare some dinner. When I came back, I had a handful of new replies, but none were helpful. I had also gotten a message. Maybe someone had figured it out after all? The message, though, proved to be a bit strange. It was written by a poster somewhere in Germany who stated that he had a picture that looked almost exactly like mine. I wrote back to him and asked what he meant. I got a reply a couple of minutes later. This time he included an imager link of the picture he was talking about. As I looked at it, I was a bit weirded out. It was almost exactly the same picture, only with a different kid and family in it. Everything else was the same. The angle, the position his family stood at, hell, even the items in the window behind them. They were all identical. This had to be some sort of stupid joke. I sent the guy a message back stating that he almost got me and that his Photoshop skills were pretty good. Of course, he started to deny it, but I didn't bother to reply anymore. Soon, another reply arrived, and the guy asked me if I had other pictures of the supposed trip. What the hell was his problem? I knew when yet another message arrived. When I opened it, I read the following. Hey, I'm sure you're a bit creeped out. Sorry about that. Do you have any pictures similar to the ones below? Attached to the message were half a dozen imager links. When I clicked the first one, a feeling of recognition flooded over me. I took out the album of my old family trip again. I looked at the picture on the screen. It was of a young boy sitting on a bench with his mother in the middle of a park. Leaves littered the grass, and there was a small fountain in the background. When I looked at the pictures of my family trip, I started shivering. There it was again, an exact duplicate. There were the leaves, there was the fountain, and there was the bench in the park. The only differences 
were my mom and me. What the fuck was going on here? I went and clicked through the rest of the imager links, and with each one, my head started to spin more. They were all exactly the same. The only difference was the people in the pictures. Was this some kind of sick joke someone was playing? But how would he have gotten a hold of the pictures? I wrote him back asking how the hell he did it. He replied that that's what he was supposed to ask. This was getting weird, really weird. For a moment, I wondered if it might all be a coincidence. Maybe the two of us were there the same day. Those things can happen, right? I opened his pictures again and started to search for the tiniest differences, but there was nothing. Then, I got an idea. It was outlandish, silly even, but there was this nagging feeling in the back of my head. I sent him a picture of yet another trip me and my parents had taken. This one had led us to a different town in southern Germany. I was antsy as I waited for a reply. I refreshed the page again and again. After a couple of minutes, the red message sign popped up. I clicked it instantly. There's something incredibly weird going on here. Why do you have that picture as well? I've got the same one in front of me right now. Attached to it was yet another imager link. When I clicked it, my eyes grew wide. It was the same picture. The only difference was that my dad and I were replaced by him and his dad. Everything else was the same. I replied to him and included my version of the picture. For a long while, I got no answer. It was half an hour later that I finally got one. We should meet. I don't know what's going on, but this must be somehow connected. Should I really meet this guy? Once more, I thought of the possibility of this all being a sick joke, but it made no sense. All the pictures here were from an old-fashioned analog camera. They'd never been digitized in any way. So how the hell would this guy have them? Once more, I looked over all of them again. This situation was so utterly bizarre. I had to figure out what the hell was going on here, so I finally agreed to meet the guy. He wrote me back his address, and we soon arranged on a time to meet. He urged me to bring any pictures similar to the ones I'd sent him. After looking through my old photo albums for a while, I decided to take a few that included various family trips. It was about a week or so later that I set out to meet this guy. It was a three-hour car ride. I felt strange and apprehensive the whole time. Who the hell was he? For a moment, the idea of a long-lost brother popped into my head, but it made no sense at all. After that, I came up with more abstruse ideas. What if he was some sort of doppelganger or an alternate version of myself? No, this is not a freaking science fiction movie. Calm down, you idiot. When I finally arrived, I was relieved to find that the guy's house looked completely different from my own. Still, it took me a while to get out of my car. 
After I rang the doorbell, a chubby guy almost twice my age opened the door. He was as surprised as me when he saw how different the two of us were. Are you Michael? You must be Steven, right? I nodded. Well, come in. Did you bring the pictures? Yeah, I brought a whole stack of them. This guy's place was messy. Seriously messy. It looked as if it had been weeks, if not months, since he'd last cleaned. He didn't even seem to care as he led me to his living room. I looked up when I saw that the whole side of the room was taken up by a giant desk. Multiple computers, monitors, and an assortment of tools covered it. When he noticed my stares, he showed me an awkward smile. Oh, sorry about that. I guess I'm a bit obsessed with the old online thing. It's where I do most of my work anyways. Oh, so you're a programmer? Something like that, yeah. Alright, well I got the pictures, so what do you think is going on here? (laughs) To be honest, I've got no clue. I thought it might be some weird coincidence, but there are too many things that don't add up. When did you say you and your parents visited that restaurant again? I think it was back in 2005. Right. And you're how old? 24. What does this have to do with anything? Well, it's because I'm 36, and I took that same trip in 1992. I had heard what he'd said, but I didn't understand. How the hell could the pictures be identical if they were 13 years apart? You got it, right? So how the hell is any of this possible? That other picture you sent me. When were you there? I opened my backpack and took out the photo albums. Hold on, it should be here somewhere. Ah, here it is. Let me see. That one was back in 2002. Michael grimaced. Same trip. Only in 1990. Freaking hell, what's going on here? He didn't answer. Instead, he rummaged through a cupboard and brought out stacks upon stacks of pictures. Well then, let's see if there's more. Over the next hour, the two of us went through all our pictures and compared our various trips. The result was that all of them were the same. At first, we were utterly horrified and crept out. But in time, the sheer surreality of the situation pushed us into a state of apathy. We went from picture to picture and compared them. Every once in a while, one of us would laugh a little or shake his head. Nothing more. I put another picture back into one of my albums. So, what about your parents? How are they doing? Both dead. They died about two years ago. In a car accident? Michael looked up at me, puzzled. No, they both died in a fire. Oh, God. For a second, I thought. But then I shook my head. No, what is it? Well, mine died two years ago in a car accident. For a moment, I thought it might have been the same for yours. I... I don't know anymore. This... this is all way too strange. Michael said nothing. In the end, there wasn't much the two of us could do at the moment. We were both way too confused and we didn't have much to go on. 
Our names were different, our birth dates and birthplaces were different, and our parents weren't related in any way. For a while, we made wild guesses what could be going on, but it was all nonsense. When afternoon turned into evening, I decided it was time to make my way back home. Before I did, though, we exchanged phone numbers and emails in case one of us would find out anything. Michael also took copies of some of my pictures and told me he'd have a look online. He knew certain people that could find out if any of the images were doctored. Only when I was in my car and driving home did I fully realize how bizarre everything was. The more I thought about it, the more I felt anxious, sweaty, almost sick. Once at home, I went to bed right away, but sleep didn't come easy. My dreams were haunted by doppelgangers and plunged me into weird alternate realities. When morning finally came, I was more tired and exhausted than the day before. I went to work, but I was barely functioning. It was in the early evening that I got a text from Michael telling me to check my email. He'd got some news for me. For the first time that day, I was wide awake. I signed into my email and opened the one Michael had sent. In the email, he told me that someone had gotten back to him about the pictures. It was an older man from Russia, who wrote he used to work in a print media company in the Soviet Union. He remembered the picture right away. The man wrote he recognized the scene in the two pictures. He used to work with the original version. It was a somewhat popular stock photo, often used in propaganda pieces from the late 70s. They all showed happy Russian families. Added to the email was the same picture once more. The family was a different one, but the scene was almost identical. There was one difference, though. All the German in the picture was replaced by words in the Cyrillic alphabet. How the hell was this possible? How the hell were my parents and me in a picture from a Russian propaganda piece? Then I realized it. There was only one way. The picture of my parents and me. They had to be fake. With shaking hands, I went through the photo albums again, looking at all the pictures of us. How many of them were actually real? How many were fake? Yet there was something else that slowly crept into my mind. Who had faked them? And most importantly, why? I was shaken from my thoughts when my phone started to ring. It was Michael. It's not only that picture. Wait, hold on. What do you mean? Remember the trip to the lake? Another stock photo. Same about the one to the museum. Also stock photos. But how? Why? God, if I know. I'm talking to this guy right now and sent him a few more. He says that most of the pictures are taken from some photo series about Soviet towns. There are some, though, he has no clue about. He noted that almost all of them looked like stock photos or have been doctored with, though. You're trying to tell me that all the pictures here... I broke up. I couldn't say it. 
Yeah. They're all fake. But what the hell does this mean? That's my life. I mean, our lives. How can someone fake all this? I got no answer from the other end of the line. I only heard heavy, shaky breathing. I don't know. I really don't. I'm going to keep talking to this guy, though, and I'll see if I can find out anything else. Hey, Michael, what are you... Before I could finish, he hung up. Fucking hell! For the next days, I was unable to do anything. I went through all the pictures and photo albums again. If all those were fake, then why did I have memories of the trips? How the hell could I remember visiting a freaking museum in the middle of Russia? Finally, I took out a picture of my parents. It was two years ago, wasn't it? Memories of the police arriving at the door, the funeral, it was all still on my mind. Then I started to think about the funeral. For the first time, I really began to think about it. When exactly had it been? I knew it was two years ago, but what day, what month, where had it been? It must have been in this town, right? I mean, that's where I grew up. I shook my head. I was out of it. I'd barely slept and my mind was fuzzy. Of course it had been here, right? If I went down to the graveyard, I'd find their grave right there. Suddenly, a shiver went down my spine. Where exactly was their grave? I was about to set out when my phone rang again. It was Michael once more. I answered right away. You found anything new? Nothing. All I heard was shaky breathing and sobbing. Hello? Michael, you alright? I did find something new. But no. Sorry, Steve. I'm sorry. Please. Leave this thing alone. It's not worth it. Just forget you ever found out about it. Nothing good will come from it. With that, he hung up. When I tried to call him again, it went straight to voicemail. I didn't get what was going on. I wrote him a message on Reddit, then later an email, but I never got an answer. I don't know how often I tried to call him. Eventually, I went to bed. It was a few days later, almost by sheer accident, that I saw Michael's picture in a German tabloid. A few days ago, late in the evening, a man in his mid-thirties had jumped to his death. My jaw dropped and I stared at the article with wide eyes. What the hell was going on? What the hell had Michael found out that drove him to do this? I felt goosebumps all over my arms and, for a moment, a surge of anxiety flushed over me. What had Michael found out that was so terrible? I remembered his last words. I was hearing them over and over in my head during the three-hour car ride to his home. The place was dark and quiet, but looked exactly the same. 
I didn't know what I was even doing, but I wanted, no, I needed to know what the hell was going on. The front door was locked as I'd expected, but I found a cracked window that I could open up. I sneaked inside and made my way through the messy place until I was back in his living room. Half of his computers were trashed. Fricking hell. Did he know I'd come here? Then I found a stack of papers on the floor. Some were printouts of stock photos, the others were covered in text. When I picked them up, they looked like scientific documents. Stage 7. Memory Alteration Test subjects are infused with artificial memories to create the illusion of a normal life. What the hell was this? I went through the stack and checked another one. Stage 3. Growth Acceleration Gen manipulation ensures maturity of test subjects in only a fraction of normal human growth period. What was I reading? This made no sense. I checked the rest of them, but they were all the same. Stage 4. Mind Exhilaration Stage 8. Social Behavior Therapy And on it went. I looked through the whole stack until I found the last one. Stage 13. Project Termination and Future Developments Test subjects show insufficient results. Project deemed unsuccessful and to be terminated immediately. Euthanasia of remaining test subjects considered unnecessary. To be kept under surveillance to gather information about adaptability to society and social norms. What the hell was this shit? I didn't understand any of it. When I checked the date, though, I saw that this last document was from early 2017. That was the same year my parents had died. My head was spinning. This couldn't be real, could it? I went through the stack once again to read more, but then I heard something. The front door was opened, and there was the shuffling of heavy feet. Think he told the other subject? No, the logs show he attempted contact, but he didn't share anything. I froze. Shit, who the hell was this? When the heavy steps got closer, I told myself I had to get out of there. As fast and as quiet as I could, I made my way back to the window and got out. It wasn't even a minute later that I drove off. I had no freaking idea what I'd just witnessed. Could any of this be real? This had to be a sick joke, didn't it? But then what about those damned documents that Michael had found? I don't remember much about my drive home. I was entirely out of it. I still am. Once I was home, I went through my whole place to find any sort of information about my parents. There's nothing, though. They seem to only exist in my memories and these old photos. The more I think about it, the more I realize how much I don't know about them. When were they born? How old had they been? Did they get married, and if so, when? 
As I'm sitting here, I don't know what to think. Is any of this real? Are my memories real? Am I even a real person? Moving from the city to the countryside can be a lot more jarring than people expect. The country is famed for its tranquility, its peace, and yet there are all sorts of strange chirps and howls far removed from what you'd hear in the city. And in this tale, shared with us by author Tom Hawkins, we're reminded that with animal calls comes animals. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Sarah Olivia, and Atticus Jackson. So take some time to get used to the culture shock. The countryside can be lovely, as long as you're careful, and pay attention to what you see reflecting on the pond. The sound of tires crunching on gravel is one I can certainly get used to. The headlights of our SUV bounce as we tread the uneven driveway leading to our new house. All around us, fireflies light up the fields and marshes. As we round a small bend, I could swear I see a pair of stationary points reflected by the high beams. Like the prairie is watching us now. But that's just the nerves talking. As foreign as this is for me, I'm excited to spend my first night in our new house. That was earlier this year, when my wife and I first moved from the city to the rural Midwestern countryside. Any transition is hard, but this one was bittersweet. My wife was offered a fantastic physician's assistant job at the largest hospital in the area, and the hint of higher income on the horizon, coupled with an excellent selling price for our old apartment near the city, made us excited to start a new chapter in our lives. However, neither of us had ever lived in a rural area. The idea was daunting. 20 acres to ourselves, to maintain and live on, and we wouldn't even be able to hear our nearest neighbors, let alone see them. The feeling was agoraphobic, getting out of the car and seeing this house we'd toured and measured and scrutinized, now seemingly so small when set against an expansive prairie and sky that were ours. No tall buildings, no constant traffic, not even a paved driveway. It was nice, but just so different. My wife worked long hours at the hospital, often all night and into the mornings. She always called herself a night owl, and though I'm not, I respected her dedication to helping others whenever she could. Besides, I didn't mind. Our German shepherd, Zeus, was excellent company and enjoyed having a yard to run through and a prairie full of birds to chase. This city really is no place for such a large dog. 
and he always seemed restless despite his daily walks. In the new house, he was relaxed, due both to a lack of loud, busy stimulation and a newfound abundance of exercise. I worked from home as a software developer, so my hours were flexible and my days laid back. This new property afforded me many tasks, from mowing the lawn and mending the fence around the garden, to simply sitting on the edge of the rough wooden dock that juts out into the ice-cold, spring-fed pond just beyond the green edges of the lawn. This pond was a beautiful selling point for the place, and I loved to sit and watch the tadpoles and tiny minnows flit around my feet curiously. I'd never known how much wildlife there could be in such a place, or how loud it could be. Morning doves, pheasants, cranes, red-winged blackbirds, squeaking bats at twilight. All manner of winged creatures join the low, constant hiss of the wind through the trees and grass and the coarse, rhythmic chatter of frogs and insects. Deer are a constant sight. There's a group of around seven that can be seen wading through the prairie at dusk and dawn. There is one thing that's always unsettled me about the countryside, and that's the coyotes. Coyotes are bolder than you'd think. I was always under the impression that if you left them to their business, they'd leave you alone, so long as they weren't starving or rabid. But from the beginning, they seemed to be very aware of who was comfortable out in the prairie and who was not. Their consistent proximity and volume made it clear to us that while we may have built ourselves a home here, it was still surrounded by theirs. Night after night, they made the short migration from their dens in the thick forest to the crop fields and winding game paths to hunt for rabbits and hope for young deer. And the sounds they make. Coyotes do not bark or even howl. They shriek. When they call or fight one another, an eerily human-sounding scream is what leaves their bodies. The first night in our new house, we honestly thought there was a child or a young woman screaming in the woods somewhere. It's high-pitched, piercing, and sounds way too much like a person. We heard this constantly, but we never actually saw them. Then, without warning, we did. It was a clear Friday night. We were sitting on the back deck, drinking and conversing quietly. Zeus lay on the wicker couch between us, drowsy after an exciting day of chasing pheasants and squirrels. It was a rare evening when my wife was home for dinner and didn't work the next day, so we were both able to enjoy the sunset. Quickly, both of us realized that the insects and birds had quieted near us. We could still hear them faintly in the forest and grass from the front yard, but where we were looking had gone still. Our lawn extended about 50 feet from the deck before transitioning sharply to tall grass. And as we watched, that grass parted to reveal a thin, mottled, gray and brown dog-like animal with large triangular ears atop its long face. Its eyes were yellow and intense, scanning constantly as its ears twitched forward and back. Behind it, more emerged. Three, then four, then five coyotes were walking on our lawn, trotting purposefully from the backyard to the front. Zeus tensed hard beneath my hand. 
His ears shot ahead, and a low, primal growl I'd never heard from him bubbled up from his chest. Not wanting him to startle these new visitors, and frankly doubtful that he could stand his ground against them all, I shushed him gently and placed reassuring pressure on his back, soothing his raised fur. The growl stopped, but he remained alert. What struck me immediately was their size. Some were clearly juveniles and smaller than the others, but the biggest were much larger than I'd ever thought. I'd always imagined coyotes to be little bigger than foxes, small scavengers that avoided contact with anything bigger or louder than themselves. The Labrador-sized animals confidently making their way past me now proved me completely wrong. They were thin, but not weak-looking. From this close, we could clearly see the taut muscles working beneath their fur. My wife and I had said nothing this whole time, though only a few seconds had elapsed. She was clearly agitated and started to stand. In slow motion, with her eyes locked on the pack of coyotes, her hip came up directly underneath the table and tipped it ever so slightly. It was just enough that her glass wobbled, leaned, and fell toward the deck. It hit a fraction of a second later, shattering at a deafening volume in the still, cool silence. Immediately, the coyotes were on guard. Their hackles bristled along their backs, and all five snarling heads whipped toward the disturbance. One of them let out a yip, and they all turned and ran directly away from the house. Zeus stood quickly, and I had to grasp for his collar to prevent him from tearing after them. In less than five seconds, it was over. Birds and insects called again, and it was like nothing had happened. However, we were both shaken. They were so close. Oh, they're big. Did you even hear them coming? What do you mean? I thought back to the moments before the figures emerged from the grass. They didn't make any noise. I didn't even hear the grass move. She had turned away again, looking out over the prairie beyond the lawn. She was right. Even when they'd turned tail and sprinted back into the brush, they hadn't broken a twig or rustled a leaf. It was hard to sleep that night, though we didn't hear the normal yips and screams we were accustomed to. Maybe that was what made it difficult. The sudden absence of that activity was somehow more sinister than its presence. It was as if they were angered at the disturbance, stewing silently as they plotted retribution. For weeks after that, the canines were more apprehensive about being close to the house, but they gradually worked their courage back up. Then came the second encounter. It was one of my solitary evenings with Zeus, and we were relaxing on the couch when he let me know that he needed to go outside. I took him to the front door and let him go about his business, and left the front porch light off so I could admire the reflection of the moon on the pond. It was so still this late at night, with no birds or rodents rippling its glassy surface. Too late, I realized the crisp autumn air had gone still. The only sound I could hear was a distant car on the highway almost a quarter mile away. 
Zeus? I said it under my breath, afraid to shatter the stillness. The only source of light was the half-moon, low in the sky beyond the pond. Its reflection wavered, and I realized something, several somethings, were passing in front of it, and quickly. Suddenly, a sharp shriek from close at my side broke the glass of the night. I rushed to the doorway to turn on the porch light and illuminated a chilling scene. As the light came on, Zeus started growling, and several dark shadows scrambled to the edge of the yard. At the side of the porch to my right, Zeus had cornered one of the juvenile coyotes, who was looking and sounding distressed. Its screams increased in volume and frequency when the light came on. With each shriek, it threw its head back and its mouth opened, lips curled back to reveal all the needle teeth lining its slender jaw. Zeus! My call regained his attention, halting his slow advance towards the young animal. He looked at me, stole one more glance at the coyote, and leapt up onto the porch. We rushed inside, and one last look out at the yard gave me chills. The light, cast by the bulbs on the porch, illuminated only empty lawn, but just beyond that clarity was the pitch darkness and the long, obscuring grass. The dark facade was broken up by pairs of yellow pinpricks. At least ten sets of piercing, furious eyes dared me to challenge their dominion. One by one, each pair blinked out, and the chatter of the night slowly overtook the sounds of my heavy breathing once more. I was left feeling out of place again in my surroundings, and couldn't shake the feeling that I had awoken something out in the prairie. And it wasn't happy to be up. A few days after that second incident, I sat down for lunch with one of my friends from college. We recounted our times together and reveled in nostalgia for a while, before the conversation turned a little more serious. So, uh, Zeus cornered a coyote the other night. What? It's not good, man. Quartered animal will do some crazy shit. Aaron had been a good friend of mine for years. He grew up just outside of town, and I trusted his practical knowledge. I know that. I don't know what came over him. I've never seen him act this way. He doesn't know the law of the land yet. I'd go outside with him the next few times, make sure he stays close. What if they come back? They didn't seem happy. They're animals, Tim. They were spooked. Besides, you're the one in their territory. Just to be safe, though, I'd pick up a nice big maglide and, honestly, think about maybe getting a gun, too. My wife wasn't thrilled to hear that, but acquiesced when she saw the genuine concern I had for myself and my companion. With that blessing and some guidance from Aaron, I soon became the apprehensive owner of a small handgun to be kept in a locked gun safe in my bedside table. The following weekend was when things really went wrong. A small conference a few hours away meant that my wife was gone all weekend, so I prepared myself for a relaxing couple of days. I could have gone with her, but her hotel wasn't pet friendly, 
and I'd have hated to leave Zeus with a sitter or at a kennel in a yet unfamiliar place. So we settled in with a true crime series and a batch of pizza rolls. I knew something was wrong when I saw the first coyote. It was broad daylight. I'd never seen one out in the open at that time. It walked across the back lawn, visible from the couch in the living room. It was slow, deliberate, and looking right at me. But that's crazy. I immediately shut the intrusive thought down and gave it no more attention until the sun had set. Zeus left the couch and stood by the front door, whining. Remembering the daytime intruder, I grabbed my mag light, but still uncomfortable with it, not my gun. I looked hard through the window, out into the thick darkness, knowing that turning on a light would interfere with my night vision. The moon was nearly full, casting a veil of white over the entire property. Tucked between two bodies of vegetation was the small pond that I loved so much. Under my gaze, the boundaries of the pond flickered as if it were changing shape. Curious, almost unthinking, I opened the door. Zeus ventured slowly into the front yard, but froze cold a few feet into the grass. I clicked on the flashlight and swept the bright beam across the lawn and the wall of grass at its boundary. Those cold specks of light blinked into existence as I did so. Then I turned my attention again to the pond, where something sinister was underway. In the light of the moon and its reflection, both dimmed by gathering clouds, shapes were arranged, orderly and unmoving. As I watched, more of them slunk in from the sides in the front, and I realized that what I was witnessing was an assembly. The silhouettes of sitting coyotes were gathering, facing me. For the first time, I processed that the night was silent. One by one, fat raindrops began to splatter on the roof above the porch and the concrete steps below me. A sudden, violent crack of lightning shocked me from my stupor, and a millisecond of daytime filled my vision with what had arrayed in my yard. Dozens of coyotes had their heads poked out in front of the long grass. To my left and right, there were yet more animals in the lawn, sitting and standing stationary, zeroed in on me. Zeus, here! I snapped at him before he could do anything. His head whipped around and he bounded towards me. As he began to run, several of the black shapes tensed, and one stepped into the circle of my light. Its slender head swung to focus on me. Cold black eyes maintained intense contact with mine for the few seconds it took Zeus to cross the yard. A threatening humanoid yell rose from the coyote's throat. I wished I had my gun. Zeus leapt past me into the house, his claws clattering on the wood floor as he turned around to growl at me. I scrambled inside and slammed the door behind me, breathing hard. Another flash, another clap of thunder, and the power was out. 
The soft, consistent drumming of rain was the only sound as the air conditioning and television shut off. I exhaled a lungful of air. (sighs) Resigned that my evening was over, I tried to call Zeus into the bedroom to turn in, but he could not be torn from the entryway. Every muscle in his body was tight, and his ears were angled sharply forward. He made no sound, but there was clearly no calming him. It's okay, buddy. They can't get you. I tried to soothe him, but it did no good. With another sigh of resignation, I pulled the couch from the living room so it faced the front door, sat and patted the cushion next to me. Reluctantly, Zeus joined me but didn't take his eyes off the door and the floor-to-ceiling glass panes on either side of it. The swirling moonlight cast a pale white glow on the porch outside, even from behind the clouds, and I found myself fading to the rhythmic sounds of the storm. I awoke with a start to a slow thudding noise. Zeus was sitting straight up next to me, and a deep growl started in his throat as I blinked away the cloud of sleep. The sound continued, coming from the front door. I turned the now-weakening flashlight beam towards the tall window, and my blood ran cold. Dozens of eyes stared at me, set back a few feet from the window. Closer, though, was the source of the sound. A single coyote stood there, looking at me. It was tall and slender, and had its lips pulled back in a sharp, morbid smile. Its breath was barely audible, muffled by the glass in the distance, but as it rasped, I could see it creating a slowly pulsing, opaque circle. As I watched, it lowered its head, backed up, then lurched forward to headbutt the glass, The creature's maw fell open, slack, and it screamed as it threw its body against the window. The scream of a woman or a child in pain, tortured. A wet smudge was beginning to form on the pane, and as my eyes adjusted to the dimness, I saw that it wasn't rainwater. It was blood. I rose from the couch as quietly as I could. Zeus stayed behind, locked in. From all over the house, I gathered furniture in the ever-dimming light of my flashlight. First was a dresser. The kitchen table followed, and the chairs. Cushions and pillows filled in the gaps to obscure vision in and out. All the while, that slow thumping continued, interspersed with those horrible screams. Several minutes later, I had created a barrier about four feet tall that would hopefully help to quell whatever force was possessing the animals outside. Finally, I went to my bedside table, punched in my code, and retrieved my handgun from its confines. Shaking, I returned to my post beside Zeus to keep a constant vigil over the doorway. The only amount of sense that my scared, tired mind could muster was that hopefully the power would be back on soon and I could look up the number for animal control. The storm continued, and Zeus and I kept our eyes on the door.
I don't remember falling asleep. I don't even know how it could have been possible. All I recall is jolting awake to the sound of furniture scraping on the floor. Zeus began barking loudly into the pitch darkness, and I jumbled with the safety on the gun. The door shifted and rocked as something threw its full weight against it. The latch was undone, and my blockade was the only thing keeping us safe. The rain poured down, mirroring the sound of blood in my ears as I scrambled to my feet. A dark shadow passed by the window, and my finger squeezed the trigger twice in quick succession. The noise was deafening and the light blinding. Glass shattered. Cold, wet air rushed in from outside, ripping at my skin and clothing. Zeus yowled and snarled, distraught. Nearly hyperventilating and ears ringing, I went to peer through the broken glass of the window to the left of the door. I heard a terrible, ungodly scream of pain as my mind caught up with my body's reaction. I realized it was my own. My lovely wife had returned early from her conference. Inclement weather had meant many professionals were unable to come, so it was postponed. She'd returned in the dark hours of the early morning to find the power out rendering her unable to come in through the garage. She tried to push in my makeshift barricade and had stepped into view of the window just as I fired the gun. Now, I'm on trial for her murder, reflecting constantly on the events of that night and of the pond. If it weren't for that godforsaken pond and what it showed me, I could have been a little more blissfully ignorant. Things maybe wouldn't have transpired the way that they did. Whoever hears this, please know it wasn't me. It was the coyotes. They knew exactly what they were doing. Some people prefer a clean-shaven look, a smooth face, nothing in the way of adornments. And that's fine, but some people have majestic beards. <laughs> Thank you. And then there are the in-between folk who shave their jaw but keep a line of hair above the top lip. But in this tale, shared with us by author Chris Alano, we meet a man who definitely shaves, but his mirror has other ideas. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Sarah Thomas, Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, and Mike Delgadio. So it might be worth being a little concerned about the man in the mirror. 
But for God's sake, stop touching your upper lip. You're not going to actually feel the mustache. Honey, come look at this. I had been staring into the mirror for over five minutes. Nothing had changed. Marnie stepped just inside the bathroom door. She was in the middle of fastening her pale blue bra, the new one. Normally, this would have been a conversation stopper. Possibly an activity starter. Today, it barely registered. What is it? You're going to be late. I hoped I didn't sound as freaked out as I felt. Just come look. With a resigned sigh that wasn't all the way exasperated, yet, Marnie walked down the short corridor of the bathroom to join me at the mirror. The enormous shower had been a major selling point when we'd bought this house, but it made for a weird skinny hallway inside the bathroom that my claustrophobia didn't love. Outside, the Gunnerson's dog Scooby was raising holy hell. The yippy little Pomeranian was a pain in the ass on a normal day. Today, the barking was like a screwdriver in my ear. Marnie stood beside me. All right, what is it? Look in the mirror. Look at my face. What do you see? Marnie glanced at the mirror, then back at me. A whitehead, right next to your nose. Gross. Are you going to be much longer? I need to get ready too. No, two more minutes. My voice sounded like an echo in my own head. I watched Marnie leave and then turned back to my reflection. It was the same old face that had been looking back at me forever, with one small exception. I didn't have, nor have I ever had, a mustache. The Kelly in the mirror was staring back at me with the same look of bewilderment that I was feeling. Except that that Kelly was doing so over a full black handlebar mustache. For the third time that morning, I ran my fingers across my upper lip. It was stubbly, but there was no sign of the impressive bristles I saw in the mirror. I ran the hot water, lathered up, and began to shave. In the mirror, Mustache Kelly did everything I did, at the exact same time, with an identical razor. The difference was that his mustache was covered in shaving foam and looked like a snow-covered hedge. I shaved my lip twice, pressing harder than usual. Mustache Kelly followed my movements exactly, but when I was shaving my lip, he was just moving the razor up and down in front of his face. I finished, wiped my face clean with the washcloth, and rubbed on some aftershave balm. My double did all those things too, and when we were done, the mustache was as full as ever, and twice as glossy. I grabbed my deodorant and left the bathroom to get dressed. Whatever else was going on, it was time for work. In the bedroom, I walked past the chest of drawers and stopped dead. There was a tall mirror on top of the dresser. In that reflection, the mustache was gone. Where it had been, I could see two tiny cuts welling with blood, which was what I should have been seeing in the bathroom. Marnie pushed past me on the way to the bathroom. What's with you today? You're acting funny. 
I took a tissue from the box on the dresser and blotted the blood on my lip. No, I'm, I'm fine, I, I guess. Just slept funny, maybe. But Marnie didn't hear. She was already in the bathroom. A crazy thought occurred to me. I walked back to the bathroom and poked my head through the doorway. Would the mirror give Marnie a mustache too? She was faced away from me, blow-drying her hair, and it was hard to make out the details of her reflection from where I was standing. I saw myself reflected small, in the double distance. Part of my face looked too dark. I turned away. This is nuts. There's nothing there. By the time I was kissing Marnie goodbye, I was convinced that I had just imagined the mustache. What a goddamn bizarre thing to imagine, though. It made me laugh to think about it. What Marnie said next, though, killed my good mood dead. Remember, dinner at Earl's place tonight. Ugh. Earl Walters was an obnoxious prick. He never let a single opportunity pass to take a shot at me. Whether it was my girl name or just the fact that I was a Red Wings fan, it seemed that Earl never chose silence when being an asshole was an option. The one redeeming quality about Earl had nothing to do with his personality, and everything to do with his chalet and Blackcomb. As much as he hated me, that's how much he loved his niece. So, for a yearly trip full of incredible skiing by day and fireside nights with Marnie, I'd put up with a lot. I'll be there. Marnie straightened my tie. Talk to you later? Yeah. Feel better. Hope so. The day was a nightmare. I couldn't go 20 minutes without touching my face. No matter what I was doing, sooner or later I'd discover that my fingers had strayed back to my upper lip, feeling for hair that was never there. I caught the edges of the scabs a couple of times, though, and my wastebasket was getting full of bloody tissues. If that wasn't bad enough, I was obsessed with mirrors. If there was so much as a reflective surface, I had to take a look. There was never anything there, though. Brad Broadbent, who worked in the office beside mine, made a smart-ass remark about me getting vain in my old age, but I'd laughed it off. Well, still trying to sneak a glimpse of my lip situation in his silver tie clip. Nothing again. After lunch, I came back to my office to find my boss Carol sitting in a chair by my desk, typing something into her phone. She looked up as I entered. I liked Carol, but wasn't sure how she felt about the rest of us. She spoke in cliches right out of a corporate handbook. Kelly, how are you feeling? I wanted to touch my lip. I could feel the skin there as a separate part of me. I put my hands in my pockets. Um, I'm fine. But I'd taken far too long to answer. You don't seem 100% today, are you sure? She was looking me in the eye. Her dark brown eyes had an intensity that was hard to meet and impossible to lie to. No, I'm not actually feeling that great, now that you mention it. I wanted to add, and by the way, I feel like I have a giant black mustache on my face. Do you see it? But I didn't. Carol nodded. Do you have any meetings this afternoon? I mentally fast-forwarded through my afternoon. No, I'm all clear. 
She gave me a smile that tried to be reassuring, but didn't quite get there. Why don't you head home then? Get some rest. Try it again tomorrow. She left before I could reply. I let out the breath I'd been holding in. Whatever the hell was happening to me, at least I wouldn't have to fake my way through the rest of the day. It took an effort, but I managed to get out the door without touching my face again. In the car, I couldn't take my eyes off the rearview mirror. Angry honking from my fellow motorists let me know how well I was managing it, but I couldn't help it. The irritated, tingly feeling that had started this morning had been getting worse all day, until it felt like my lip was literally on fire. The mirror insisted on showing me the same bare face that I'd gone to bed with last night. As I turned onto my street, I found that I was getting almost excited by the prospect of checking the bathroom mirror again. I'd spent all morning obsessing over my reflection. Why should I be so eager to see something that had totally derailed my day was beyond my ability to explain. But I could hardly wait. My tires squealed as I pulled into the driveway. Before I could make it inside, though, Janice Gunnarsson came running over from her front yard. Kelly, thank goodness you're back. Scooby's missing. It took me a long moment to realize she was talking about her dog. I wasn't sure what response she was looking for. Oh? Have you seen him? Panic gave her words a sharp edge. And normally I liked Janice. We had her over for dinner a lot. She was generous to a fault and told stories that kept everyone laughing well into the second or third bottles of wine. Today, though, I had no time for her. Or her shitty little dog. Sorry, Janice. I left at 7.30 and he was still barking. What about earlier? Weren't you out in your yard uh, around lunchtime? Didn't you see him then? I felt like I'd been kicked in the stomach. Lunchtime? What the hell? Could you help me look for him? Please? Janice took no notice of the effect she'd had. Tears that had been welling up since she came over started rolling down her cheeks. I'm... I'm sorry, Janice. I've been at work all morning. I started to walk away from her. More than ever, I had to see the bathroom mirror. Nothing else mattered. But I saw you Jesus Christ, Janice. I think I know where I've been today. Don't you? I may as well have slapped her. At that moment, she looked more pathetic and needing of sympathy than her stupid dog ever had. Look, I'm sorry. My head is killing me. I actually came home to go back to bed. If I see any sign of Scooby later, you'll be the first to know, alright? She stood where she was for a few seconds, looking at me, not saying anything. After a few long seconds, she turned and started walking in short, halting steps up the sidewalk, shouting for Scooby in a choked voice. I ran up the steps to my house and went in. Without taking off my shoes or jacket, I sprinted upstairs. Once I got to the bathroom, though, I stopped. I wanted to see, needed to see. But at the same time, I was terrified of what it would mean if the mustache was back. I heard Janice's words in my mind again. Were you out in your yard? A puff of wind stirred the curtains near the window on my side of the bed. 
Out back, Marnie's ceramic windshine tinkled and rang in the breeze. I closed the window. From here I could see the weedy, rocky patch in the yard that I'd been meaning to clean up and plant since spring. The earth looked darker than usual, like it had been freshly turned. Our long-handled spade was jammed into the soil, leaning towards the house. Come here, you little fucker. Come on. I'm crouched down by the chain-link fence between our yard and Janice's. The little dog isn't barking. He's snarling at me. I grip the wrecking bar tighter. Come on, Poochie. Pain snapped me back to myself. Felt like someone had touched a lit match to my upper lip. What the fuck was going on? I charged to the bathroom door. From here, the mirror made the walkway beside the shower seem twice as long. The effect was like seeing another world beyond the glass. Where did the doorway on the other side go? I was starting to think, as crazy as it seemed, that it might not lead to the bedroom. But where, then? I flipped the light switch and walked quickly towards the mirror, where I was greeted by my own nearly perfect reflection. I gasped. Other me gasped. But was there something different in his expression? It was subtle. A malicious glint of the eyes, maybe. How could that be? I closed my right eye. The reflection dutifully closed its left at the same time, but now it looked like he was winking. I touched my lip again, needing to feel the naked skin, needing the reassurance. The hand in my reflection was covered in dirt. I touched the glass and saw the lines of my own palm caked with garden earth. Taking the soap from its dish, I turned on the water and scrubbed my hands. Mustache me did the same. When I was done, the sink on my side was clean, with little bubbles of foam popping in the drain. On the other side of the mirror, my doubles basin was filthy with grime and streaks of something else. Something red. Come here, Poochie. Electronic chimes split the silence, and I jumped. My reflection for once looked exactly as shocked as I did. I fumbled my phone out of my pocket and saw the note from Marnie, Cell. Remember dinner at Earl's. On time, please. I clicked the screen off. Great. The last thing I needed right now was... Oh, no. The phone sat silent and heavy in my hand. What if he knows? It was a ridiculous thought, but the entire situation was ridiculous. I was pissed off at Janice's stupid dog and somehow my other had done something about it. I hated the thought of spending time with Marnie's uncle. Did that mean that Earl was next on the shit list? My eyes flicked back to the mirror. Was there a hint of smile on the double's face? It was hard to tell with that damned mustache in the way. Suddenly, there didn't seem to be a right thing for me to do. If I left the room, the other would leave too. To go who knew where. On the other hand, I couldn't stay in the bathroom forever either. The eyes in the mirror were my own, but the reflections seemed to not show any sign of the panic thoughts flitting through my mind. I touched his face again. 
Watching my own hand stroke that god-awful strip of hair was the final straw. I ran from the room, stumbled down the stairs, and got in the car. Traffic was a mess. From my office downtown, Earl's place was 20 minutes away. From home, in rush hour, it would likely take an hour to get there. I'd be late, and Earl would be primed and ready to strike as soon as I got in the door. Super. After 40 minutes of white-knuckle steering-wheel-thumping driving, I was waiting at what must have been the 13th red light when my phone went off again. I picked up and for a moment could only hear someone crying. My breath was catching in my throat. Marnie? Marn? What is it? Uh, Earl, his heart. What happened? I asked, but I already knew. My own heart was starting to pound. They're not sure. He's still in the ER. Come meet me here, okay? We're at St. Paul's. All right. It was a tough drive to the hospital. Mostly because I spent the entire time with my eyes glued to the rearview mirror. Thirty minutes later, I was with Marnie in the hallway of the St. Paul's emergency ward. Her eyes were puffy and red from crying. We hugged in silence for a while. Pulling away from my chest and wiping her eyes and nose, Marnie told me that she'd left work early and headed to Earl's to help him with dinner. When she arrived, she'd found paramedics closing up the ambulance. I shuddered. I'd been in the car on the way to Earl's house by then. What had the other me been doing? I remembered mustache me's hands in the mirror and streaked with dirt and blood from the yard work. Had he beaten me to my uncle-in-law's house? I wiped my hand on my jeans, trying to get rid of the dirt that wasn't there. Marnie drew back a bit to look me in the eye. It's all right. He's going to come through. (gasps) What have you been doing to your face, Cal? Oh, God. The mustache. I reached up and stroked my lip again. For the second time today, I felt a bright flash of pain. The skin was hot to the touch, and I took my hand away. I had an itch. I I guess I kept scratching at it without thinking. I knew I sounded lame as soon as the words left my mouth. You should get someone here to look at it. It looks like it's getting infected. She grabbed my chin lightly. I let her turn my head back and forth. How could you not notice? It's raw. I took her hand off my face and held it. Never mind that. How's Earl? Okay for the moment. They won't let me see him yet, but it looks like he's out of danger. Marnie was calming down, but my mind was racing. More than anything right now, I wanted a mirror. How could I have chafed myself so thoroughly without noticing? The answer was simple. I hadn't been looking at my lip. Not really. I'd been looking past it. Looking for something that refused to show itself. Except in the mirror in our bathroom. Marnie was staring at my face again. You should put a bandage on that, at least. Something to keep you from touching it until you can get it looked at. Her voice was getting stronger. She was going into her take charge mode. I didn't argue. 
Take Charge Marnie was much easier to deal with than scared Marnie. She stopped a passing nurse. Excuse me, could we get a bandage from my husband? He hurt his lip, but we're waiting to find out about my uncle. The nurse looked at me and winced. Not the reaction you ever want to see from a health professional, by the way. I don't think you want to put anything on that until a doctor's seen it. I'll go check in at the desk, but how fast am I going to get in with all these other people waiting? I'm going to be waiting forever, and I keep touching it. I don't mean to, and now it's getting worse. Do you have anything I could put on it just for now? I hated how dumb that sounded, but I had to force my hand back to my side even now. It was true. The waiting room was crowded with people coughing, people sneezing, people grabbing body parts and wincing every time someone in scrubs walked by. The nurse dug in the pocket of her tunic. I can't argue with that. I'm in peds, though, so your choices are Scooby-Doo or Spider-Man. Have you seen Scooby? I felt my hands start to shake and tried to dismiss the memory of Janice's tear-streaked face. Easy, Kelly. Be here with Marnie. Focus. Spider-Man. I took a black bandage with a pattern of red webs printed on top. The nurse helped put the strip on my face and I winced. Now that I'd noticed the pain, it was making up for lost time. I thanked the nurse and she laughed. When I turned to face Marnie, she giggled. What? I look stupid, don't I? <laughs> you have a little mustache. It's cute. Cute was the last thing I felt. Lightheaded, nauseous, terrified, any of those, all of those. I ran my fingers over the bandage. I hissed as pain flared again. Marnie slapped my arm lightly. Stop it. That's what got you into trouble in the first place. We waited in the emergency waiting room for another hour before the nurse came to talk to us. She wasn't unfriendly, but she didn't waste time with small talk either. Earl was awake and had been moved to a ward. It looked for the moment that he'd suffered an attack of angina rather than a full-on heart attack. I'm slamming a golf club against Earl's front door. Splinters fly as the metal club gouges the wood again and again. I kick above the doorknob. I'm shouting. It's definitely my voice. Open up, you miserable son of a bitch! The door cracks and splinters. Earl's on the other side. He's dialing the phone. I start to laugh. Do you want to go in? No. He doesn't want to see me. Marnie's eyes were pleading. Kelly, please. All else being equal, I can never resist that look. What if they call me? I'd hate to have to start waiting all over again. Hang on. The nurse, who was still standing and waiting for us, moved behind the emergency desk and checked a stack of charts. Yeah, you're not getting seen for at least another hour. But... Don't worry. I'll find you if your name comes up. I was out of excuses, and Marnie took me by my arm and we followed the nurse to Earl's room. We should let him sleep. We'll just poke our heads in for a second. We went in. Earl was wearing a pale green mask over his face that was fogged with his deep, regular breath. 
A machine beside the bed had wires attached that led beneath the sheet to his chest. There were no outward signs that he'd been in the fight, at least from what I could see of his face and arms. Earl is lying on the floor, looking up at me. I've never seen the old bastard look anything but mean. He's terrified. I can hear him whimpering. I can smell that he's shit his pants. I'm laughing my ass off, walking toward him with the golf club. Suddenly, sirens. Getting closer. I hawk a gob of spit right in Earl's stupid goddamn face. I came back to myself, and Marnie was walking to the bedside. I held her back. Let him rest. There'll be lots of time to visit when he goes upstairs. I was still trying to convince Marnie to leave the room when the beeping from the heart monitor sped up. I looked back at the bed. Earl's face was almost purple, and he was flailing about with his arms, reaching for the sides of the bed. You! He was trying to talk. Spittle flew from his liver-colored lips. The beeping grew faster. It was joined by a louder, steady alarm that was likely summoning the doctors. I got out of the room as fast as I could. Marnie followed me, looking stricken. What the hell was that about? I don't know. What could I say? There was no way she'd believe me. I'm not sure I believed me. The beeping from the heart monitor started to slow, and the alarm shut off. After a while, the nurse returned to tell us Earl had been stabilized again, but we wouldn't be allowed to see him again until tomorrow. Right as we went back into the emergency waiting room, the triage nurse called my name. Thinking about my lip made me touch it. It felt like I'd stuck my face into a butane torch, and I had to stop myself from screaming. Well, I don't think you're going to be surprised at what I'm going to tell you to do. Stop touching it? That's what I waited for two hours to hear? I didn't try to hide my sarcasm. I wasn't in the mood for light-hearted banter, and this doctor looked five years younger than me. No shaving, either. His voice became more clinical. Fine, his expression seemed to say. Be an asshole. The doctor scrawled something on a prescription pad. This is a cortisone cream to help with the inflammation. Use it three times a day for about ten days. If it's not getting any better after two days or so, go see your family doctor, right? Got it. I tried to muster real sincerity. If I ever ended up in this emergency room again, I didn't want this doctor to remember me as a prick, unworthy of help. I uh, just wanted to say thanks again. Really. The doctor turned back and smiled. You're welcome. But then his expression suddenly changed. Seriously, though, stop touching it. I had no response to that as I realized, with dawning horror, that I had been rubbing my lip again. My fingers came away slick. A blister had popped and I could taste salty pus trickling into the corner of my mouth. There was a tiny sink in the corner of the examination room and I spat into it. My thoughts raced seemed impossible that only this morning everything had been perfectly normal until I'd walked into the bathroom. Now I had an unconscious tick that was destroying my face. And worse, 
There was no telling what that other me was doing right now. That I was even thinking in those terms was enough to make my head spin. Maybe I was going crazy. I hoped so. It would make things so much easier to understand. The first time I applied the cream to my lip, it felt like I'd bathed my face in gasoline and lit it on fire. After a few days, the pain started to lessen. Marnie had been ruthless in stopping me from rubbing, threatening to tape oven mitts to my hands. She still thought the reason for the injury was a phantom itch. That was cause enough for concern, but how much worse would it have been if I'd insisted on telling her about the mustache? Or worse, my other. Besides taking care of my skin, I did my best to keep my anger in check. Even though my other was wearing the same bandage that I was wearing in reality, I couldn't take the chance that he might still be going out. After a week back at work, though, and a week of bandage-related put-downs from Broadbent, it was tough. But no, things had gotten way too close, and way too creepy with Earl. There was no way I'd get that lucky again. A week later, my real mustache was growing in nicely. I was almost through with the cream, which was a relief as it was a pain to comb through the tiny hairs to keep it from looking matted. I was feeling better mentally too. Because of the bandage, all my reflections looked the same. It was getting easier to start disregarding the whole episode as a byproduct of stress or overwork. But then again, there was still that pile of earth in the backyard that I couldn't explain. And the Gunnarsson's dog was still missing. Have you seen Scooby? I can't find him anywhere. Come here, Poochie. Once the bandages came off, it was confirmed. The other me was still there, in the bathroom mirror. But something was changing. As my own medically prescribed mustache came in, the other's face fuzz was getting thinner and shorter. It made him even easier to deal with. Feeling less concerned with my reflection all the time had a big impact on my personality too. It was as if, having survived the ordeal with Earl and the dog, Mirror Kelly wasn't such a big problem to worry about. Marnie was as surprised as I was that the mustache was a good look for me, and it led to some seriously sexy times featuring one black mustache and one fancy new blue bra. Earl recovered, and to my great relief, he didn't remember anything about the incident that had put him in the hospital. However, the first time I visited him with Marnie, fresh stash on display, his opening salvo of smart-ass remarks died on his lips. And he suddenly couldn't be a more gracious host, proffering drinks and snacks and kind words. I didn't mind that at all. One morning, about eight weeks after the entire business had begun, I was checking my hair in Marnie's vanity mirror and it struck me that the mustache I had now was an exact match to the one I'd first seen in the mirror that first day, and it started the whole crazy business. Soft, trimmed black whiskers flowed across my upper lip and curled down slightly at the edges of my mouth before twisting back with a natural flourish. This was the style that felt right. With this realization, though, came a curious impulse to go check the ensuite mirror to see what my other was doing. 
At the doorway, I paused. A thought had dawned on me, and I knew, without a doubt, what I was about to see. Obviously, I'd seen the changes in the reflection, but this was the first time in weeks that I was really looking. The first time that I was thinking about the trouble that my other had caused. I kept my eye on the mirror as we approached each other down the walkway. Mustache Kelly was no more. The figure in the mirror was me still, but his face was totally bare. The expression in the other's eyes was something else. The malevolence I'd seen before was gone. Instead, the other's eyes were wide, staring desperately at the world on this side of the glass. I put my hand up to the glass. The double's hand came up with mine. It was shaking. Suddenly, all pretense of reflection broke down, and my clean-faced doppelganger began beating his fists in a soundless fury on the other side of the glass. Beneath my fool, black mustache, I smiled. Outside, an evening brought darkness and cool air to the neighborhood. The Gunnerson's new dog was yapping again. It was enough to drive a man to extremes. In our final tale, we find ourselves in a world overrun by mysterious creatures, but you'll rarely see them, or more accurately, you'll rarely know you're seeing them. They can take on any form they choose, after all. And in this tale, shared with us by author Michael Mearson, we're forced to consider how to fight an enemy that can rarely be identified. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett. Atticus Jackson, and Sarah Thomas. So keep an eye on that tree, that mug, that box, that fence, that mysterious newcomer to your safe haven. Are they what they appear, or are they just a facsimile? I watched the tiny boat drift aimlessly toward the island from the clearing atop Hattie's Bluff. Something glinted from inside. Something moved. I grimaced. Shit. I closed my book, slipped on my suicide vest and grabbed my rifle. I hated going to the beach. Hated going off my footpaths. Hated wading through the scrub to get there. Hated how exposed the open sands made me feel. No place to hide. For either of us. It took forever to get through the jungle. Had to whack and stab and scrape at every goddamn thing in front of me with the sharp copper tip of my bamboo pole. Only 11 feet between me 
and what I was hitting. Far too close for comfort. I hit the beach at a shuffle, sweeping the pole through the sand like a blind man with a cane. Knew they could hide under sand. Snow, too. Saw that myself. No reply. Felt my guts twist. I tucked the pole beneath my arm, careful not to sever any of the vest's wiring, and shouldered my rifle. I wasn't swimming in ammunition, but I'd be a damned fool to walk right up and say hello. I put a single bullet into the front of the boat. The gunshot, like thunder, splintering the wood sending pulped clouds prow onto the sand. Last I knew, they couldn't do that. I neared. Baby steps. Pole out. I jabbed the boat. Jabbed the green tarp inside. Jabbed the moaning lump beneath. The man jerked back, surprised, slurring a question I answered by raising my rifle. He rubbed his face, eyes blinking, looking from me to the island and back. He wore a stained gray t-shirt, brown and black pants with heavy tan boots. Military, probably. Who wasn't these days? The man sighed before slumping back, unconscious. Cool wind from the sea blew through my beard. The boat was real. The tarp was real. If he was a mimic, he would have gone screaming into a million mouths the second my copper touched him. God damn it. It took me over an hour to drag the man back up the mountain. Used a rope from my pack to pull him through the dirt like a sled. Swore the whole way, soaked in sweat. It was a hot day, hotter than most. Hotter still in the jungle. All the Simtex strapped to my chest certainly didn't do me any favors. We made it to the footpaths. Trails of burnt, blackened earth six feet across. Then up, past Hattie's Bluff. Past Smiling Rock. All the way up to the cabin. It wasn't much, but I could scavenge from the trawler. Some logs, a few odds and ends that washed ashore. Stark. Empty. Not a lot of places for them to hide. I tied the man to a thick enough tree out back, out of the sun, away from the cabin. Took a bowl of water from one of my rain barrels and gave it to him real slow. He spit out most of it. Cut up a mango, 
he did the same. I grunted. He wasn't going to make it. The moan woke me. I had heard it before from dying friends, like a long, bellowing question, growing higher and more desperate before gurgling out. I shot to my feet, the vest's wires rattling, and shouldered my rifle. The man was still asleep, head down, snoring softly, his face barely visible through the thin orange glow of the dying fire. I watched him, breathing slow, my finger on the trigger. I could feel it, the act of pulling it, the quick mechanical click, the pop, the gun's sudden kick against my shoulder. Something moaned off in the distance, down the trail, in the jungle like a man caught in a trap. I hissed, sweat already on my brow. Hey, you hearing this? This one of yours? The man's eyes fluttered, his head bobbed. Uh, what's... I stormed back into the cabin, slinging the rifle over my shoulder. I popped the lid off a crate hidden beneath a tarp, pulling out three dark brown sticks of dynamite. I stuffed them into my pockets, grabbing a bulky hand-cranked flashlight and my pole. The man called out as I set down the path into the dark. I cranked the flashlight to life and pulled the suicide vest closed. Island nights are clear, and on a full moon fairly bright. From high up the mountain, from the cabin, I could have seen clear to the beach. But here in the jungle, beneath the canopy, it was a deep, dark, quiet. The flashlight's beam was like a hole in black cloth, showing bits of trees, tops of ferns, the occasional bat wing or lizard's tail. The jungle was alive with sound, insects chirping, the soft crash of distant waves the throaty calls of nocturnal birds. I moved slowly through the brush. A part of me was still in Oregon all those years ago. Back with the 608, a kid marching through a forest east of Portland. I was seeing those trees open up all over again, like caskets full of teeth, branches twisting in the rakes saws, pulling everyone in. 
Margot, screaming. I could still hear her inside the trunk as it chewed on her. I don't remember dropping my flamethrower or running away. I just remember how it felt. Watching the trees and rocks around you turn into hungry, sucking mouths. The tall grass brushing against your legs as you waited to be next. The sound came from my left. Close now. My arms were shaking, the beam of light jittering across the dark as I pushed forward, stabbing at the jungle with my pole. I broke through onto a small creek bed, rocks crunching beneath my feet, too exposed. I saw it out of the corner of my eye, coming down the bed, quivering like rubber. It froze in my flashlight beam, stunned. It was a boar, almost a boar. Its legs were far too tall, too thin, quivering on the rocks. Its skin seemed to bulge and pulse with strange moving patterns. It took me a second to register them. Hands. Dozens of them. Just beneath the surface. Groping for a way out. I took a step back away from the sheer wrongness of it. And the boar jerked back to life. Its crooked mouth fell open to reveal a thatch of thick, squirming fingers wriggling from its wide throat. I stumbled across the rocks, startled, dropping my pole. The boar skittered toward the tree line, torso twisting its skin cracking in the dark jungle bark, settling into the knobby shape of a tree. I pulled a stick of dynamite from my pocket and twisted the flint ready start. The stick's fuse lit with a flash and I threw it into the tangle of trees that not or fled into. The explosion shook dew from the canopy, drenching me as I turned to run. No time for caution. No time for patience. The branches slapped against me. Did that one reach out? Were those tugging at my clothes? Was that a tendril in my hair? My boots slid in the mud, sending me to my knees. No! It was the kind of no I had heard far too often myself. Shouted by soldiers in their last few seconds. Soldiers who had opened the wrong door or didn't double check or didn't find cover. Wood squealed behind me. Shaking hands fished out another stick, lit it, and threw. I launched myself into the brush, into a thousand waiting vines, one hand already on my vest's detonator. 
even in the deep blackness of the jungle, it seemed to shine. That chipped red button. My thumb twitched closer with each new step, each half-heard sound, each flitting, churning shadow. They wouldn't take me. Not ever. I broke into moonlight, onto my clear-cut trail, thorny vines clinging to me like streamers. I shook them off, skin crawling, screaming. Something moved in the jungle, at the tree line. I lit the elastic dynamite and heaved it into the dark. Dirt rained down on me as the explosion punched a hole in the jungle. I swung the rifle off my shoulder and took aim. No trees ran forward. No rocks tried crawling away. No writhing, churning carpet of mouths came flooding out. I inched back up the trail, blinking the sweat from my eyes. Trying to forget the people I'd seen torn apart by backing into doorways that weren't doorways. My hands shook. The rifle rattled. The jungle was silent. I raised the fence as soon as I got back. The old crank whined as it pulled a web of handmade copper wire up there on wooden posts. It wasn't tall enough to keep out the biggest I'd seen, but it was enough to buy me time. Maybe. I pushed the rifle's muzzle into the man's chest. He awoke with a start, his mouth bent into a confused grimace. What? What are... You were followed. No. No, no, no. I was at sea. For weeks. I jabbed the muzzle into him again, striking his sternum with a meaty clap. Don't lie. The man shook his head. There's no way. I glanced back to the acre of bare blackened earth between me and the cabin, the old panic settling in. I half expected to find a small tree that hadn't been there before, or a bucket, or a footlocker, or some random scratched stone. Instead, I found only dirt. I pulled the rifle into my shoulder and leveled it at the man's eyes. He pushed himself back against the tree. Wait, no. My finger hesitated on the trigger. I saw her, Hattie, a lifetime ago, shouting at us from behind the barricade, roaring with the other protesters. Except now, I was watching her smile. Years later, when we jumped that barricade on the way to the trawler, 
Whatever happens, she said, we do it together. Fuck. I flicked the safety on and swung the rifle back over my shoulder. There wasn't much in the locker I had taken from the 608. Extra vests for Hattie and I, some ammo, rations, a pistol, and the phosphorus flares now rigged to the underside of the cabin's frond roof. They popped like champagne bottles the instant I yanked their improvised ripcord from outside the cabin. The cabin's green-brown palm roof exploded into flame, curling into embers falling onto everything I had below, spreading the blaze. You can't. You can't. I watched as everything Hattie and I had built burned to the ground. Nothing screamed. Nothing snarled. Nothing tried to crawl from the furnace in cabin. It all just turned to ash. A line of greasy orange flame roared and crackled through the jungle, scattering birds and belching a mile-high column of gray-white smoke into the air. Every now and then, a section would sputter out, and I'd have to wrap the bandana around my face and go in and reignite it. I was down to a few gallons of fuel. I had pumped tons, literally tons, from the trawler years ago, but it goes bad. <laughs> they never tell you it goes bad. I wouldn't have enough to torch it all. A torrent of flame kicked up over a dead tree. A blast of heat that sent me backpedaling out onto the charred remains of former jungle. The fire seemed to unfold as a half dozen flailing, twisted bodies rolled out onto the dirt, screeching and sputtering. I watched down my rifle sights as they fell apart, their long, burning tendrils sloughing into dollops of meaty napalm. The jungle churned beyond. Through smoke and quivering air, I could see their bulging masses darting through the trees. Dozens of them, fleeing the fire, sinking deeper into the jungle, far from what I could burn. Wet, gurgling growls resonated from the trees to my right, to my left, and behind me. We were surrounded. Two straight days of hard rain had turned the ground to sucking mud. The man sank his shovel into the slick trench wall, splashing through ankle-deep water, groaning as he slopped another mound of earth out onto the burned grass. He was looking better each day, to my surprise. His strength returning. Strength enough to help me dig a moat just outside the fence, between the camp and the jungle. 
It wouldn't keep them out, but it'd slow them down. Make it harder to hide. A tree appearing in the middle of a moat is mighty conspicuous. I watched him work from beneath a tarp draped across the tree branches above. My new pole on my lap, carved from one of the cabin's surviving rafters. A six-footer. Not great, but better than nothing. My hands worked to wrap its pointed tip in salvaged copper wire. You know that's not real. The copper, it's superstition. I pulled the wire tight. I saw it work in conscription. Kid from Sacramento drove one away with a copper pipe. I was terrified. They don't get scared. They're like animals. Animals get scared. Dig. I could only stand a few more strange shovelfuls before I spoke again. How far did they get? When you left? The man paused. Bent over. His eyes fixed in the middle distance. For a moment, I thought I'd broken him. Everywhere. There. Everywhere. I nodded. A strange, sick pang in my stomach. Why was it so hard to hear? I had seen this coming. It's why I ditched the service in the first place. When I was younger, all I heard was how the sudden appearance of mimics was Europe's problem, Russia's problem, Iran's problem, India's problem. They couldn't cross the ocean, couldn't fly. Then, when Canada had confirmed they were crossing the Arctic Circle, something we were told was impossible, suddenly became our problem. Like it wasn't always. Once I was conscripted to hold the border, all I heard was how they couldn't take on the greatest military in history that they were just dumb animals. Then we were the planet's dominant species for a reason. Like we'd always be. What's your worst one? Everyone had one. Their worst encounter. Even when I was stateside, people swapped them like surplus cigarettes. A confused look crossed the man's face, rain pouring off his chin. In a Kansas. Kansas. I was in a research detachment, cellular biologist. We made camp in what was supposed to be a green zone, scouting near this evacuated town. Found whiskey. Got drunk. Woke up the next morning. Everything fine. Hung over all the hell. Miguel, this one microbiologist, had taken off his boots to sleep. He finds him. 
sits down and slips them on. The man paused, stabbing the sides of the trench with a shovel. We hear him scream first, then a sound like grinding. We rush over. He's got these two little ones on his feet, all teeth and muscle. Hooks sunk up into his legs. Blood everywhere. Our guide drives them off with a flamethrower and fries them as they shoot away. Never seen anything move as fast as those two. Anyway, we look down and Miguel's feet are just gone. It was a minute, maybe, and that's all it took. Ragged stumps. The man filled his shovel, raising it. We dressed the wounds as best we could and carried him out. No one had the heart to tell him his real boots were just a couple of feet away, under a tree. He must have just grabbed the first ones he saw. He flipped the earth onto the pile. What about you? You got one? I adjusted the suicide vest. I hadn't taken it off since the man arrived and it was beginning to rub sores into my skin. I never had brains. I couldn't even hack it as a mechanic. Let alone a biologist or doctor or nothing. So when the conscription order came in, they put a flamethrower in my hand and sit me to the front. I twisted the wire shut at the base of the pole's point, securing it to a notch in the wood. There's nothing up front but the worst ones. The man grunted, emptying his shovel, motioning to the camp. You built this, though. That takes some brains. (laughs) This wasn't me. The man paused again, that look of confusion. Then who? Her name caught in my chest. What words could capture the years? Her plans scrawled in the margins of the old trawler's maps. Her tongue clicking against her teeth in frustration. Her smile as we pulled the fence high. It doesn't matter. I stood, walking into the downpour. got to get this done before nightfall. Perfect. The sound of the man's voice snapped me out of my half-sleep the only kind I'd had in a week or more. 
I sat up, blinking, hand on my detonator. Murmurs filled the dark. A low gibbering so quiet I wondered if I had imagined it. The copper fence glinted in the faint flickering firelight. Still intact. And beyond that... Jesus. Trees. A forest of them. Feet from the trench. Deathly still. Waiting. Someone cried out. The copper-tipped pole was in my hands as I rocked into a crouching position. Movement across the camp, near the fence. I neared, slow, brandishing the pole like a spear. The man stood at the edge of the fence, shifting his weight from one foot to the other, staring up at the mountain peak. To Hattie. Hey. You okay? The man looked back, startled, almost crazed. Sorry. Sorry. It didn't matter. Nightmare woke me. I'm exhausted, but can't sleep. Ain't that a shit? I pointed the flashlight at the ring of silent waiting trees. Works for me. We'll need someone to take first watch. The man stared out at them, trembling hand at his chin. The perfect ambush predator. That's what they called them in school. The mimics. Patient. Quiet. Intelligent. I handed him the flashlight. Then you better not let them ambush us. He didn't look away. There were breaks in the tree ring every dozen feet or so. The man guessed it was to funnel us to where we'd be easier to catch. Hunting lanes, as he called them. I hated them for that. The strange efficiency of it. What little dried meat I had stored was long gone. Hunger was taking its toll. The man was pale again, trembling. Sometimes I'd find him mumbling to himself, off alone, confused. There was a weird comfort to it. After years alone, another human voice, even a rambling one, was like finding summer after a lifetime of dead winter. I had taken to sitting beneath the tarp, eyes on the knot trees, feeling the waves of hunger travel up and down my body. The pangs had begun to fade. Bad sign. Maybe one would trigger the vest, 
when they finally came. Maybe they'd take a few. The heavy crack of wood pulled me from my daze. The man, wide-eyed and screaming, tore at the fence with his bare hands. Lines of copper wire snapped free from the posts, curling into bundles on the ground. I scrambled to my feet, legs aching, ordering him to stop. What the hell is wrong with you? Stop it! Just... just do it! You got us! I threw the butt of my rifle into the back of his head. The man buckled, listing to one side. But he did not fall. His hands were on me before I realized he had moved. He pulled the gun from my hands in a single easy motion before wrenching me into the air with his free hand. I spun once, too shocked to scream, and slammed into the ground. The man threw the gun effortlessly across the camp and turned, eyes bulging. ran forward, silent, through the gap in the fence, out into the mimic trees. They shuddered and writhed as he slipped between them, their branches twisting into long, snapping tendrils. By the time I rolled onto my stomach, the man was gone, lost to the shaking crowd of not trees. No screams. No cries. I was on my feet, screaming, tearing at my hair. The mimics stood silent, waiting to eat. It's all they ever did. Eat. They ate my life, my love, my home. The closest thing I had to a friend in years. I ran to the middle of the camp, kicked open the charred metal box, and scooped out the last remaining sticks of dynamite. Rage pulled a tight smile across my face as I ran back, choking on spit and laughter. The first stick's ignition switch popped to life, and I threw it. The ground erupted between the knot trees, showering steaming earth and flailing bits of mimic across the camp. The ring rippled, scuttling around the crater, branches and leaves wiggling like fingers and tongues. I howled as I lobbed another stick. And another. The thunderclap of booms of the dynamite shook the ground only made me scream louder. I was out of sticks by the time I reached the spot in the ring the man had disappeared into. Now a patch of smoking earth, the mimics were desperately fleeing. I swore at them, laughing, hoping they had something inside that told them to be afraid. The column of gray-white smoke 
ahead of me eased back like a curtain, revealing the man in the distance scrambling up the mountain. He got through. He got through. I ran back to the middle of the camp, the suicide vest bouncing on my shoulders, and grabbed the fallen rifle and my copper-tipped pole. The mimics were already pulling themselves back onto the dynamited ground as I reached the fence. I felt a tendril brush my arm, curling into hard teeth, missing my wrist by half an inch. Something snapped near my neck. Something skimmed at my feet. The air was alive. I could only run. My legs gave out as the grass turned to sandy white rocks, throwing me to the jagged ground. I rolled back, shouldering my rifle, but the mimics were still around the camp, drifting in the breeze. My chest pounded. My entire body shook. No time. I hit the rocks at a clip, chasing the man up the steep mountainside. When the panic finally died away, the obvious question hit like a truck. Where was the man going? There was nothing up here. No escape. Nothing except... Hattie. There's no way he... I pushed to climb faster, but my aching muscles only groaned along at their broken pace. Stop! Stop, damn it! Stop! The man climbed higher. I heard the man's animal snarling before I crested the mountaintop. I was out of breath. My body burned. My muscles threatened to tear from bone. And when I saw the man clawing the dirt from Hattie's grave, I found my strength returning. His back was to me as I stumble ran over, rifle shouldered. Stop! What are you doing to her? He grunted, shaking his head, tearing at the ground, ripping open that old scar. I felt tears welling. I've got a gun on you! Stop! The man kept digging. Dirt hit my legs. The man bellowed something. Away from her! The rifle jumped in my weakened arms as the bullet punched a small, clean hole between the man's shoulder blades. He fell forward, 
groaning into the bloody dirt. I stumbled back, my shoulder numb from the recoil. My legs gave out again and I fell backwards into the grass. I sat there, watching a patch of dark red spread across the man's dirty gray shirt. Alone. Alone again. Christ. Oh, Christ. The years yawned open ahead of me. Even if I could find food, even if I could survive those not trees below, it would be worse. Worse than death. The thought was a burning coal at the center of my brain. The man sat up. I scrambled to my feet, using the copper-tipped pole for support. I hadn't killed him. Could I shoot him again? Could I make that choice? The man eased to his feet, his back still to me. For a moment, I couldn't understand it couldn't put the pieces together. The bunching, squirming skin. The twitching muscles. The wiggling beneath the man's shirt. But when he turned, his face long and twisted with too many mouths. Too many teeth. The old instinct kicked in. Fired another round into the man's stomach. He, it, doubled over, but kept walking, pulling himself back into shape. I fired again, again. By the time he had closed the distance between us, he had returned to the man I had found on the boat all those days ago. I dropped the gun and thrust my pole, sinking its copper tip into his shoulder. The man rocked back, stunned. His fingers wound around the pole, tendril-like, pulling into a tight bundle. Superstition. He snapped the pole in two with a sudden twist. I backed away, brandishing the broken end of my weapon, unable to find words. Dying. Starving. His hand lashed out, grabbing me by the wrist. A gray and white bird chirped from a nearby outcropping startled by the sudden movement. 
The man's free hand shot out, stretching into a whip-like tendril, catching the bird as it launched into the air. It squawked once as the tendril coiled around it. The dry twig snap of hollow bones made my stomach churn. Here. The man brought what was left of the bird up to my face. Squirming appendages held my head in place as the still warm carcass pushed its way into my mouth. I choked on it, gagging back the meat and feathers, the bones and the claws. Eyes watering, unable to breathe. The tendril forced the bird farther down my throat. When the man pulled his hand away, I fell to all fours before him, coughing thick strands of bile onto the grass. I thought they thought the man crouched beside me animal like his throat squirmed for a moment as if he were choking on the words humans think mimics get bigger the more they eat Wrong. We get more... complex. I wanted to spit in his face. But the second I moved, my body lurched. Nervous system. Across our whole body. Like a jellyfish. Our cells like... human. Mirror neurons take the shape of the animal neurons they touch. Complex mimic can replicate entire brains. He patted his chest, smiling. He knew that. Now I do. The man glanced back down the mountain all that endless water. But human brain is more complex. Information becomes tangled. You asked how far they had gotten. I could see our borders shrinking. But it wasn't mimics. It was humanity. We were everywhere. Humans nearly extinct. But the more we spread, the more they learned. I climbed up onto my knees. Bullshit! 
his eyes weren't on me, but I had his attention. Gas first. Neurotoxin. From mimics. From planes. From trucks. It cleared whole colonies. Still, we survive. So they made the virus. Attacked protein for regeneration. For keeping fluid. Mimics just dissolve. Spread so fast. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to hide. I was surprised to feel the grin stretch across my face. I didn't know if I could believe it. But by the pained look on the man Mimic's face, he certainly did. And that was good enough for me. Well, it's just too bad. <laughs> Make sure you say hi to the fucking dinosaurs for me. On the island, it's not too late. <laughs> You and your friends can wait here all you want. Kill me if it makes you feel better. But sooner or later, we'll come for you. Sooner or later, humanity's gonna finish the... It hit like a punch, choking the words from me. What had been two of the man's fingers were now needle-sharp rods disappearing beneath my chin. I tried to talk. I tried to breathe. But could only gag on blood. My hands flew up, feeling the sharp, gory points protruding from the back of my neck. The man pulled his fingers away, dropping me face first into the ground. I shook, sucking in air through the hole in my windpipe, watching the blood pull around me. I saw Hattie's grave through the man's legs. I did what I could. Lived as best I could. I kept going. Like she asked. The world faded to a hazy gray as the pain dulled. And I forgot about the island and my eyes closed and my throat popped I gasped rolling back onto all fours coughing eyes wide I touched my throat disbelieving feeling only smooth 
unbroken flesh. All thoughts, all logic, gone. How? There's no... I couldn't let myself think it. It was a dream. This was a dream. I was already dead. Humanity is your problem. The man held out his hand. You fucking know me. The man simply watched as I crawled to Hattie's grave, weeping, wanting to see her again, to hold her, to hear her say my name, to tell me what she was building, what she had planned. I pulled myself on top of the open grave and froze. The sound caught in my remade throat. Two. Two broken skulls sat yellowing, half buried in the dirt. Fragments of their skeletons mingled together notched, cracked, half-chewed. How? That's not right. I remember. You don't. I remember. She got sick. I buried her. I remember. Came to the island, probably with others. Stop! Consumed the male, took his shape. No! Couldn't convince female, or didn't want to. You consumed her. No! I remember I loved her! The man pointed to the open grave. You didn't. He loved her. You had something else in the shape of love. A facsimile. I stared at him, unable to look back at the bones, at her. It wasn't true. You got confused. Badly buried what was left of the two, convinced yourself she got sick. Why did you feel bad? The man was all I could focus on. It wasn't the subtle wrongness of his face that I hated. 
The eyes a little too far apart, the mouth a little too wide, or how he moved, both too fluid and too thought out. It was his smirk. I could see every flaw in his mimicry now. But that self-satisfied smirk, that was genuine. Mimic hierarchies, from most complex to least, you were confused, island confused, stuck as trees, rocks, now we know, now we rebuild, when humanity comes, we take I pushed my hands through his chest, my fingers suddenly, instinctually as hard and sharp as broken slate. It was so fast. The knife point of my flesh slid out the man's back before I realized I had even stepped to him. The man looked down then back up to me. What do? I dragged my hand up his chest, into his neck, carving through flesh like a prowl through water, my eyes wide, all hate and anger. cried out once pained before I bisected his head he fell back sloughing out of his clothes body twisting folding in on itself trying to become something new trying to pull away it screamed I think or came as close as it could so, I ran. I made it down the mountain in a blur. Only the jungle stuck in my mind. It was so quiet there. As if the life had been drained from it. Had there been life at all? Was that too just imagined? The blue of the ocean stretched out forever. I waded knee-deep into the tide, boots sinking into the soft sand, the warm water lapping at my legs. It was like I could see it again, drifting in on the stolen fishing trawler, half-starved long far off course her hand in mine I could still feel it the echo of that touch those moments those memories those were real they just weren't mine the vest's detonator was in my hand 
smooth and warm and terrifying. But no, no, this was insane. It couldn't be true. It. Baby? What are you doing? Her voice came from behind. It made me shiver. I turned back, a warm pit opening up inside me. I couldn't tell if it was horror or relief. She stood at the edge of the sand, dressed in the man's clothes. Come on, come on. She waved me over, flashing that smile. And that sweet, small smile that had been my starlight for years. I was stumbling towards her, something like anger burning at the back of my mind. It couldn't be her. The clothes, the mimic. But how? The bones. Her bones. But the bones couldn't be enough. The closer I got, the lighter I became. Her arms like a home. It was like a dream. Yet I felt her against me as we fell into each other. Warm. Solid. I pulled her tight. My body shaking. It's... It's been... You... You can't imagine. I tried. I went on like you said. I fought. But oh God, it's... It's been so hard. It's okay. I'm here, baby. I'm here. I'm here. We have so much work to do. And you know I couldn't do it without you. Her words pulled me back to Earth. To the island. The anger at the back of my mind flared. Too hot to ignore. This wasn't right. She wasn't right. I felt tears sting in my eyes. I felt my body's shudder turn to something else. My flesh was squirming. We have to prepare. I looked to that familiar red button still in my hand. I was seeing it all again. My life, his life, our life, childhood fights and first loves, the army, the horror, the friends running away, our life with Hattie. And I took that away from someone once. I was supposed to take that away from them all. The longer she held me, the more I was sure of it. 
of the monster inside me. The perfect ambush predator. I love you. I love you. I'll... I closed my eyes. I wasn't a copy. I wasn't him or them. I was only ever... me. I pulled head closer. I'll always love you. And then I pushed the button. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.